A reading from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 4, and verses 23 through 28, and then then in chapter 39, verses 6 through 10, and 19 through 23. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did... The Lord made it made the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Lord, so many people in our room tonight, all with different stories, joys, but also disappointments, locked goals, traumas. We're so grateful that your scripture tells the true story of this, and we pray that you might connect your story with our story right now. 
And we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this evening, we're going to start a new study, which we're calling Faithful Ambassadors. Now, in our city with over 175 embassies, and that equals to a lot of ambassadors, that idea may not be unfamiliar to you. An ambassador is someone, an official of the government that represents the interests of that government on foreign soil, often the highest ranking official. In the United States, ambassadors are said to serve at the pleasure of the president. And their job is to uh, administrate his policies, protect U.S. citizens. Yet, long before the modern use of ambassador, the followers of Christ were called ambassadors. This is how the Bible refers to those that name the name of Jesus. Jesus claimed to usher in a kingdom. A kingdom that was the fulfillment of what God started with Israel, but also a kingdom that was meant to extend all around the globe to every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, a global citizenship. And this kingdom was established or is established on what you might call foreign soil, occupied territory. That is occupied by sin and evil and injustice. And so the New Testament will often make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the world. And as it does that, when it says world, it doesn't mean so much the earth as we see it, because the earth is the Lord and everything in it. So he reigns, even though men may feel they occupy the territory. But as the Bible uses that term of world, it's talking about a mindset a mindset of those that would rather glorify themselves than glorify God, a mindset of those that would rather save themselves than have God save them, a mindset of those that would rather serve themselves and their desires rather than serve their neighbor. And of course, that's reflected in all our hearts this evening and in our city. Yet God, not for a moment, ever forsook his earth or the people of the earth. He sent his own Messiah King, the highest ranking representative, God himself, to come and not only seek and save the lost, but then commission them as representatives for him in the work of God. And Israel was a light to the nations, and the New Testament tells us the same followers of God are called ambassadors of Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul referred to himself and his fellow apostles. But by extension, it really refers to everybody that is a believer or a follower of Christ. Their job is to go and represent him in every facet. They're called to represent God's purposes and his righteousness in the world. If tonight you're, you're a Christian, that's what your job is as an ambassador. And there are some that were called to do that face-to-face -face with other kingdoms at very high levels, like Joseph, Esther, and Daniel. And by studying their lives, we learn something about the art 
of being an ambassador. The way that we are to actually live between these worlds, the world and the kingdom of God. We see it in the way that they are unflinching in their boldness toward God, but also how generous they are in their respect toward people of other faiths. We see it in the way that they both had compassion, but commitment. Commitment to their faith, but compassion on those that were around them. And at a time when the Christian church and the culture is only getting more and more distant and becoming more and more at odds, it's more and more important that we understand this art of being ambassadors. And so that's where I want us to spend some time in the next couple months. We'll be looking at the life of Joseph, Esther, and Daniel, and we'll begin these first couple weeks with Joseph and the lesson of the making of a leader. The making of a leader. And I have just two points here. This kind of leader is made in humility and made in faith in the little things. So let's consider those two things. First of all, the making of a leader made by humility. Now, we love stories about humble beginnings. Whether it's Abraham Lincoln growing up in a one-room cabin in rural Kentucky, or whether it's the story of the great father of jazz, Louis Armstrong, who grew up in such a tough neighborhood in New Orleans, it was called the battlefield. Or, more recently, um, a young Indian DJ and record producer, DJ Calcutta, who began her life in one of Mother Teresa's orphanages. We love stories of humble beginnings. They inspire us. But there are other stories, too. Maybe we could say they're humble middles. It's someone who starts as a rising star. Life seems so promising, and then they find themselves at the bottom of the heap. And this could describe Joseph's life. He has a grand beginning. He is the favorite of his father. He's given a royal robe which meant to indicate that he would rule over the family and the tribe instead of the firstborn. Add to that, he's given actual revelation from God, prophecies from God in his dreams. That's a pretty good beginning. And yet at the age of 17, when you can imagine he's just thinking about all the high hopes of his life, it takes a swift turn. Upward mobility quickly becomes downward mobility. And his life is launched into a series of disappointments and failures that will occupy him for over a decade. He experiences them in his closest relationships. You heard it read that his brothers, it was said that they couldn't even greet him. They hated him so much. So much bitterness. And that bitterness grew and grew until they began to plot his own murder. And instead they took the more uh, advantageous route of making some money and selling him into slavery, which was still a capital offense. And you can see that the way the text tries to highlight this, if we read the story of Joseph, you would see over 20 times the word brother appear because it's highlighting the great contrast of how someone that would claim to be a brother could treat his brother that way. Not even one out of 10 showed him pure compassion. You know, our families are supposed to be the place that are our shield and our buffer. No matter how much people hate us out there, supposedly your family will still love you. But Joseph is deprived of that. He experiences it with the loss of his future and identity. 
When Joseph's robe is stripped from him, his future is stripped from him. That's really what it symbolizes, the dreams he had. Like a promising athlete might be sidelined with an injury. Like a promising youth in the city might just finally faint under the hopelessness of the systems of poverty that they have to live under. Like a new bride or a new groom who comes home to find out that their spouse no longer loves them. His future is gone before his eyes. Everything that he had hoped, everything that he had dreamed at the age of 17. And not only that, his identity. It was the practice with European and American slaveholders that they would not only strip slaves naked, but they would strip them of their identity. They would uh, tear, tear them from their own families, tear them away. They would give them new names, and then they would purposely place them in different language and ethnicity groups so they couldn't communicate and talk. They were totally isolated. This happens to Joseph. He's torn from his customs. He's torn from his family traditions, his religious worship, even his own language, and is likely given a new name. His identity is gone. How humbling that must have been. And then he faces the systems that are against him. He's falsely accused and falsely imprisoned. Now, when he was thrown in prison there, I, you know, we can't have the whole text printed in the bulletin. I wish we could read the whole story. You might have gotten the impression that he, was, he got thrown in prison because he didn't go to bed with her and Potiphar got mad. That wasn't, that wasn't what the text was saying. What actually happened was Joseph is resisting the advances of this captain of Egypt's wife. And we're told that she is relentless in the way. He, he refuses to use his handsome good looks, and that's why we're told that in the text. His good looks, he's well-built and handsome. He refuses to use those for his own advantage. You can imagine being tempted, especially if you feel like God has forsaken you, to say, you know, God has left me to draw. I'm going to use what I got to get as far as I can go. But he doesn't do that. But she continues after him. And we're actually told in their last encounter, she physically attacks him. She physically assaults him. He runs out of the house. Again, his robe is stripped from him. He runs out in just an undergarment. And then she calls together the other slaves in the household and builds a plot and says, he tried to rape me. And actually, he tried to humiliate you. He tried to make sport of all of us. She tells her husband, Potiphar. Potiphar throws him in prison, which likely was a sign that he believed Joseph because he would have been executed otherwise. But you think about this guy's life. Now he's in the dungeons of Pharaoh's prison, forgotten. Forgotten. One step forward, ten steps back. Every, every ex- exaltation becomes a humiliation. Every evelation becomes escalation into trouble. Joseph's life just goes worse and worse. And it's not just a a few bad months or a few bad years. It's 13 years of this, all through his 20s. we got a lot of people here in their 20s. Those years where people are dreaming and thinking about their dreams, they're gone from his life. And maybe there's some of us here that can relate to that story. You think about when you were six or seven and someone asked you, what do you want to be? Or maybe as you were headed off to college. And you had these dreams and you think, I never thought I would be here now. Those dreams were before the abuse happened in my life. Those dreams were before 
my health went south. Those dreams are before my career stalled. Those dreams are before the dates stopped coming. And in your mindset, you could maybe a share in the song that Fontaine sings in Les Mis, if you know the musical. He or she is a woman that had high hopes for love and life. She becomes a single mom. She loses her job to no fault of her own, and she ends up on the street as a prostitute. And she said, I dreamed a dream, and now my dreams have been turned to shame, and I'm living a living hell. I think Joseph could relate to that. And yet through all of that, we're told that God is at work. I want you to hear that. This is not a flannel graph person. This is a real person who experienced real traumas, like some of us in this room. And yet God was at work through the evil that was done from him. Joseph will end his story by saying that. What you meant for evil, God meant for good in my life. He's able to look back and see it. But more so, God is at work in the very life and soul of Joseph. The theologian Bruce Waltke said that when you look at the introduction of Joseph, God's future agent in Egypt to save the world couldn't have presented a worse first impression. He was likely spoiled. He's a bit of a tattletale. He's a braggart. Even though God is the one that told him he would be the, lead the family, he can't resist in telling his brothers that. And he says it with little sensitivity of how it would have felt to the firstborn and the other brothers. Joseph does not present as a humble person. And yet God wants Joseph's piety in his character to grow along with his gifts and skills and opportunities. He wants that inner life to grow with the outer life, which is in part why these events unfold in Joseph's life. You know, I will regularly say God does many things at once and all things well. And so many things are going on. We'll look at some more next week. But right now in Joseph's life, this is the purpose God has for him. And I think it's the case that you and I, more naturally and often, we, we dream about the opportunities and hopes we might have. We dream about what we might be able to accomplish and achieve. But we seldom think about the humility it will take the severe humility that God will require of us in our lives. And God must call this upon Joseph if he's going to be an effective ambassador. Imagine the kind of an ambassador Joseph would be if he would have continued in his narcissism, in his egoism, in his pride. He would have been a dictator. Yet he ends up being someone that saves his regional world. He becomes the agent that reconciles his brothers and his family together. But it's not apart from this work that God does in his heart. And in this way, Joseph mirrors the perfect son of God. I mean, who could have imagined the path of humility that Jesus Christ would have walked? Who could have imagined it? That the eternal second person of the Godhead the divine son would actually have to become flesh and blood, that he would be born in a stinking stable, that he would be born into a no-name family, that he would just do chores around the house and take up a trade, a carpenter, and live in obscurity for 30 years. Who would have thought that the Son of God would have that path? More so that when he would start his public ministry beginning, it wouldn't be applause immediately he would be facing opposition. Who would imagine that his best friends would betray him? Who would imagine that he would be humiliated by the most holy 
prophet that ever lived would be called a blasphemer by his religious community. Who could imagine that the Son of God would be stripped naked, beaten beyond recognition, hoisted up on a cross in front of the whole world, crucified out of the holy city, and become sin itself to be judged with the wrath of God in place of all those who truly deserved it and would believe in him? Who could have imagined that path of humility? None of us could have. Not the closest angel closest to the throne of God could have imagined it. But that's the story of the Christian faith, that God would become that humble to have you, to rescue you. The book of Hebrews says that he learned obedience through what he suffered, and at the heart of obedience is humility. Jesus yearned, earned humility through what he suffered. And so, we are made by humility if we're going to be an ambassador of God. If the Son of God, the chief ambassador, went through it, we must expect it as well. But second, it's also being made by faith in the little things. When you read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, in many ways it's told from a secular point of view. There's very little mention of God's work, of any miracles. God doesn't speak to Joseph. You don't really hear Joseph speaking to God. There's a great silence. Now, we can be sure that Joseph cried out to God when he was in the prison for years and years and years, but we have no indication that God spoke back and answered his specific prayer. No indication of that for this chosen, called, favored one of God. So how in the world did Joseph trust God? We know that he did because when Potiphar's wife tempts him, he says, how can I do this wicked thing? Not against Potiphar. He cared about Potiphar's respect. How can I do this great wicked thing against God? How then was he connecting with God? If God wasn't sending revelation, if he wasn't answering those prayers and getting them out of prison, how did it happen? One person has said, when Joseph, when Joseph's um, situation changed, God's relationship to him did not. For this reason, he could rise again and again in situations that would have surely crushed others. What did he have? Well, he knew that the Lord was with him. Listen to these verses. The first comes from chapter 39, which we couldn't read. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Moreover, we're told, his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Blessing was on all that Potiphar had in the house and in the field. And then later, in the text we had in prison, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in sight of the keeper of the prison. He put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let me give you three ways that the Lord was with Joseph. How is it that the Lord was able to hang on, or rather how Joseph was able to hang on? The Lord knew how to hang on. First, Joseph accepted God's answers to his prayers and not his own answers to his prayers. 
Joseph accepted God's answers to his prayers and not the ones that he expected or had asked for. You can imagine Joseph had many prayers. Free me. Return me from home. I mean, return me to home. Uphold my righteous cause. I didn't commit this crime. We can imagine Joseph prayed all those prayers. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? And for years and years he prayed those prayers. For 13 years. Have you ever prayed for something for 13 years? We can imagine he did. And the big reason that people lose their faith and stop believing in God is because we want our answer to prayer, not God's. You know, we want to, God, I've got this loneliness. I want my cure for loneliness to be a boyfriend or girlfriend rather than a couple good friends who will love me faithfully. Or God, I want my answer to prayer to be an ambassador in this circle. I want this sort of influence in my career rather than influence with these people and in this job. We want our answer to prayer. And yet Joseph is able to trust in the way God would answer. I was reading Tim Keller's book, Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, this morning, and I caught this quote, God gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything he knows. God would give us everything we'd ask for if we had known what he knows. And somehow Joseph's able to understand that and get it. Number two, Joseph accepted God's blessing in the way that it came. And that was primarily through good work with lowly tasks. That's where the blessing came. Good work through lowly tasks. It's repeated over and over that Joseph did good work. You know, we talk about faith and vocation in our church. And a big part of that is what does it mean to do excellent work? Over and over, it's repeated, Joseph did good work. And catch this, that was the primary way that the world knew that God was with Joseph, by the good work that he did. That's repeated in this text over and over. Now, yes, Joseph likely spoke the name of the Lord because Potiphar in the prison guard knew the name of the Lord. But if I had to guess, I think what happened was they saw the way he worked and the way he succeeded, and they were attracted and curious to ask him, tell me about this Lord that you have. And see also that it's not that Joseph did well the work he wanted to do, but he did well the work that God gave him to do. Now that can be a convicting thing, right? When it's work that we want to do, we'll often have energy and faithfulness. But it's, when it's work we don't want to do, what's our work ethic like? I remember, and I may have mentioned this once before, some years back, uh, Jean Baldwin, wife of Bob Baldwin here, uh, we were at a leadership meeting together, and uh, I don't know if we were just commenting, celebrating, uh, you know, Bob's fruitful ministry in our community, uh, and in quote-unquote his retired years. This man is anything but retired in the kingdom of God. You guys know that. But it was this statement that Jean said that caught my attention. She said, you know, Bob did the job that God gave him to do for years and years. It may have not been the job that Bob wanted to do. Bob, was that the job that you wanted to do? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. You'll ruin the point, okay? Either way, the point was that was the job that God gave him to do. And so he did it. Joseph was given a job he probably didn't want to do, Right? But that's the job by which the blessing came, and that's the job by which people understood that the Lord was in town. 
You know, many times people come to Washington, D.C. to do grateful things, or rather to, to do great things rather than to be faithful in little things. I mean, maybe you came to this town because you thought you'd make your mark and you'd rise in your career and you'd distinguish yourself. The question is, did you come here to, do, to be faithful in little things or to do great things? It's those invisible duties, right? The dishes, the diapers, loading the dumpster, filing the data, the invisible tasks that no one sees. We might want God to bless us for the work we want to do, but he'll bless us for the work that he gave us to do. And you see that in the life of Joseph. You got to think about all those little tasks that Joseph had to do for 13 years. I mean, the most menial of tasks, the smallest little things he had to do. But we don't have to go far because the same thing was true with Jesus Christ. I mean, grow up and up in a home, he had to do the chores that all the kids have to do, that we had to do. Jesus had to run and go get the wood. He had to clean the tools. I mean, 30 years of this menial task, the Son of God is being trained by them. A way that the Lord was with him. And we're told Joseph did such a great job, the boss didn't even need to look in or check in on him. The boss never had to wonder, I wonder if this person is really doing their work. And here's the thing I want you to see. If Joseph failed to do good work in the little ways, he would have not only failed to be an effective ambassador, he would have missed out on the way that God was with him. He would have missed out on the way that God was making his presence known to Joseph at a time where he needed to know it. It didn't come by way of revelation. It didn't come from get me out of this circumstance. It came by seeing his everyday faithfulness blessed. And maybe that's the way God wants you to know that he is with you now. Even in an area that you're longing, that you've prayed for over and over. And lastly, he accepted God's favor through unlikely sources. You know, we imagine Joseph could have easily thought, I'm going to do this work to spite this enslaver. I'm going to do this work to spite this prison guard. But he didn't have that attitude at all. You have the sense that he joyfully served. In fact, he wanted to bless those that were likely hostile enemies toward him. And how does God communicate his favor? It's through them. Unlikely vessels, the way that God decides to mediate his pleasure and favor in Joseph is through their promotion of him and their words to him. And so as we begin this journey of what it means to be faithful ambassadors of God, let's begin by understanding that leaders are made by humility and leaders are made through faith and faithfulness in the little things. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for uh, the way that he served, the way that he came. Thank you that when we trust in you, your spirit lives in us. And so that we can live like Joseph and we can live like Jesus. Would you help us to do that in Christ's name? Amen.